Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Happel speaks about the commandment to not give false testimony as the next part in our Law for Life Sermon Series. If you would like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Enjoy! So if you've been with us at all, you know that we are into a summer sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And if you've missed on any of these, you can always go to our website. You can either watch uh, an archived sermon, or you can hit the podcast button, and you can listen to our messages as a podcast. And so today we're kind of switching things up a little bit because it's our fourth commandment, which would be keeping the Sabbath holy, but I've swapped that with Joel Kareko, who's going to take that one later on. And today I'm going to be teaching on the ninth commandment, which is do not give false testimony. Uh, And later in the summer, Joel's going to take the other one. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you'll know that Richard was here preaching, and he did a great job helping us to understand what it meant to not misuse the name of the Lord, the Lord our God. And not just on a surface level, the Sunday school answer, don't do that, but also asking a deeper question in our lives about what it was, um, how we value God or see God or how much he means to us. And so it was about our relationship with God, and I hope that you saw that message. Now, this series, for sure, has to be seen through the lens of the cross, has to be seen through the grace of Jesus Christ, for this reason. Whenever we're looking at the Old Testament and we're looking at commandments, we can become legalistic. We can fall into the same kind of sin that Jesus pointed out about those uh, Pharisees, because they treated it like a checklist before God, but they didn't really look at their hearts at a deeper level. And so Jesus was really hard on the Pharisees for that. And we want to make sure that we do not become Pharisaical, legalistic about the Ten Commandments. But really, we want to see them in light of our relationship with God through the cross and desire to live them out. Isaiah 29, 13 says this, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far afar from me. And I think that that's kind of capturing what we don't want to fall into. The Pharisees did that. They were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So we want to be cautious as we come and look at these Ten Commandments. But if we know who God is in our life, and if we know that his son Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins, then we've entered into a relationship with him. And it changes everything. We're not just trying to check off a checklist. We're trying to seriously incorporate this truth into our own lives and live it out because we love God. The key to all of this, of course, are the words of Jesus when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. And the whole point of what Jesus was saying is that if you took all of the Ten Commandments and all of the other 600 plus commandments of the Old Testament, really this sums it up. If you are truly loving God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, then you're going to be Uh, living out the Ten Commandments. I want to remind us that we looked at a framework where the first four commandments really speak to our loving God, our relationship to him, and the last six speak to our relationship to loving our neighbor as ourself, loving one another. And so you can see that breakdown there. And today we're looking at number nine, which is do not lie or do not give false testimony, which would be a complete violation against our neighbor. Now the Ten Commandments are found in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, you're not sure where to go, You go to the second book in the Old Testament, which is Exodus, and it's named Exodus because God exited the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and then he gave them these Ten Commandments, which are found in Exodus chapter 20, if you want to go and read them. 
He gave these Ten Commandments to Moses, who then gave them to his people, because he was calling his people into relationship with himself. And if they were going to enter into relationship with God, then they needed to live out these qualities and characteristics that reflect the nature of who God is. And the Ten Commandments kind of, in summary, uh, encapsulate that. So, with that in mind, let's look at this Ninth Commandment, which says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Or, as we commonly refer to it, you shall not lie. Now, in order to lie, we're using our words, right? We're speaking forth something that is not true. Um, But as Jesus pointed out, words that come out of our mouth flow out of our hearts. In fact, he said it basically just like that. uh, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And, And so where I'm going with this today is that we, we do want to look at our words, but we also want to understand that this is a deeper heart issue. Our heart is reflected through the words that we speak forward. And if we're lying, then that's saying something that's going on on the inside. Now, James has told us that it's really hard to control the tongue. He put it like this, and I love his honesty here. We all stumble in many ways. So that's a pretty honest reflection of our human nature and our natural bent towards sin. And it works its way out in different ways, one of which is this. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. He's just simply saying that, you know, if you can keep your tongue in check, well, then you can keep everything else in check. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Wow. So he really points out the nature of the challenge when we're talking about not speaking forward these words. Um, It is incredibly difficult to control our tongues. So what are we aiming at here? In applying this command today about not um, giving false testimony against our neighbor, we're going to look at three different ways that this could happen. One is actually in court. We are to tell the truth in court. Secondly, we are to tell the truth in everyday life, outside of the court in everyday conversations and situations. And thirdly, we are to be living a life that's consistent with the words that we speak. We are to be truth tellers in court and in everyday life in our words and in our actions. So that's kind of the totality of where I think we need to be applying this command in our lives today. Let's start by looking at what it means uh, to tell the truth in court. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This seems to be the specific focus of this command that in a legal or judicial setting before a judge or a jury, you are not to give false testimony. Now this should be pretty self-evident. No one should stand before a judge or jury and lie about their neighbor because of what the harm that could come to them, right? And I think that this is pretty self-explanatory. If a person were to lie in court about their neighbor, then there's the potential that the judge or the jury would be misguided to what really happened and judge that person guilty even while they're innocent. And that's called injustice. And God hates injustice because God is a just God. That is his character. That is his nature. And we are to reflect that. Courts today do rely on eyewitness accounts. It's interesting, though, that they've done studies to show how often these eyewitness accounts are actually really accurate. Um, People often will see something, and then they give a testimony to it, but they might not have seen it exactly accurate, or they've added a value to it, a negative value. Um, It's pretty powerful in persuading outcomes in court cases. Now, the focus of this command is really to not intentionally misrepresent a situation or someone that would cause them harm. That that would be the full 
force of it. But there's, there's a nuance to this of what can happen in our humanness, right? We are very quick to add a conclusion to what we have seen. And so I, I think that it takes really wit, um, wisdom here in our eyewitness accounts to not be too quick to judge, judge, jump to the conclusion part. I mean, that's why you have the cross-examination, right? So the first person gets up there and they say, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this, and there's already the therefore. And then the other guy comes up and he cross-examines, he says, hold on a second now, what exactly did you see? Let's go over that again. Now, did you actually see that? No, I didn't. Oh, because you inferred that you had, but you didn't. You see, and so that cross-examination is, is put in place to make sure that the eyewitness account is just being accurate to the information. And the caution that I'm speaking here is that in our humanness, we tend to jump to that conclusion, don't we? Um, the, the false accusations often are ahead of the full information being given. Now, the weight of not bearing um, a false testimony in court is huge. We see it in the Bible when it comes to certain people who were falsely accused. There was horrible consequences that came out of this. Uh, falsely accused. So we have Stephen, who was the first one martyred for his faith in Acts, falsely accused. We have Paul, who ended up in prison, falsely accused. We have, of course, Jesus, where a few people were brought forward and they had to get their story straight, but they were willing to falsely give information against Jesus and use it against him, which eventually led to his crucifixion. So, you know, this is the, the, the seriousness with which this command of God is given that in the courts, in bringing proper judgment, don't bring false witness and don't be too quick to draw the conclusion until a proper process has taken place. Maybe you've heard the saying that we judge others by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Um, oh, sorry, a false testimony in court brings harm against your na neighbor. That's where I was going with the last point. And with this one, you know, we're, we're quick to judge someone else by their actions. We draw that conclusion, but we actually don't know their intention. And yet, when it comes to ourselves, we know our own intentions, so we let ourselves off a little bit more, uh, while at the same time judging someone else for maybe doing the same thing. So, be careful. Be wise. It's not just, though, that the commandment was to pertain to a court environment. The second area that we want to look at is that it pertains to all of our lives. We are to be truth-tellers, not just in court, but in our everyday lives. So this would be the second area that I want us to look at. The principle of understanding what was going on in the court was to be applied to other situations. It, it was never intended to have a narrow focus where it was like, well, this only applies to the court. No, it was to be understood like this. If you can understand why it's important to tell the truth in court, then you can understand why it's important to tell the truth all the time in everyday life. And that's the way that all of these uh, commandments that we're looking at were given. That the people of God who understood the commandment in its more narrow, restricted form would then be able to understand how it applies to other areas of life. This is where the Pharisees got it so wrong. I mean, Jesus would come to them and accuse them of something, and they would go, oh, we didn't break the law. And Jesus said, yes, you did. And they'd go, no, we haven't committed adultery. And Jesus would say, but you've lusted after a woman in your heart. That's adultery. Oh, or we haven't murdered, but you're angry against your brother. And so we come to this commandment here about not giving false testimony. And we could look at it at the court, and then we kind of let ourselves off in everyday life. Well, that's, that's being guilty of the sin of the Pharisees. We don't want to be like that. Every single one of us understand that the challenge of being a truth teller all the time 
in every area of our life is exceedingly difficult. To some degree, we violate this command in our everyday lives. Why? Because the tongue is hard to control and the heart is desperately wicked. Here is a question that I want to pose to us today as we look at this. Are we just trying to let ourselves off on a technicality when we tell a lie, we try to defend ourselves? Or are we aiming to become honest people who reflect the character of God? Like, what's our goal? As I said before, the goal should be that we are truth-tellers in court and in everyday life as it pertains to our words and our actions. Because everything that we're about to talk about now in how to not violate the Ninth Commandment in our everyday lives is pointless. It's pointless unless we settle first what is it that we're aiming at. We're just trying to get off the hook for a lie? Or are we actually desiring to be shaped by God himself and to reflect his character? I once had a friend who uh, shared a story about a friend of his, and he, he used this phrase. He said, he's a slippery fish. <laughs> Slippery fish. It's a good word picture here because, you know, the more you try to squeeze a fish, the slipperier it becomes and it, whoop, it kind of pops right out of your hands. And so his whole point was the more you squeeze this guy to try to get the truth out of him, um, the more that he just comes up with more lies, more lies, more excuses and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, if we're the kind of people who are actually desiring to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind and our neighbor as ourself, and we're being squeezed to tell the truth, you know, we shouldn't be trying to get out of it. We should be honest to reflect on it. And if it is a lie, and if it's not true, then we need to admit it, and we need to ask forgiveness. I'm going to be blending the last two, point two and three, together here. The part about living out, be truth-tellers in your everyday life, in the words and action part. Because I really see a correlation of how these two go together. In fact, they're almost inseparable. That what you say with your mouth and what you do in your life, that it's telling the truth or telling a lie. Um, and so I'm going to kind of weave those two together. Um, what's interesting about lying is the various forms in which it can take on. And I think that you know this, right? We have the little half lies or the white lies. We have fibbing, that kind of category, right? We have the withholding information which skews the understanding, that kind of lie. We have exaggeration. Um, we have self-preservation lies, which actually when you think about it, I, I think most of our lying is just to save face somehow. Um, we have the ends justifies the means kinds of lies. We have the, I know what you want to hear, so I'm going to tell you what you want to hear. That kind of a lie. We have the person who says something and they don't mean it. But you know, then there's another person who actually does mean it. They're well-intended, but they don't follow through. And maybe if that's a one-off, that's not like a lie. But if it becomes a pattern in life where we say we're going to do something and then we never follow through, isn't that a form of lying? And we get really good at all of these kinds of things. Um, in fact, some people are so good at it that they make it a way of life. And you know what happens when a person is a chronic liar. It wrecks their relationships. It wrecks their careers and their business deals and uh, friendships. And quite frankly, it ruins lives. So, Let's be honest here. Um, James has already been honest to say that we struggle with all sorts of things. Uh, we all struggle with lying. I'm going to say to some degree, there's an element of this. So why don't we just go around the room and raise our hands, those who are the half-truth tellers, those who are the ones who struggle to tell you what they think you want to hear, and those who are the pathological liars who believe themselves even when no one else does. We are all guilty of lying at some point along the way. 
I came across on a website um, the four types of liars. And this is put out by a guy whose last name is Near, and so he's titled his website nearandfar.com. And what he tries to do is uh, understand human behavior and then relate it to like the business context to help people working with employees do better. And so he was picking up on uh, four types of liars. He called them the duplicious liar, the deceitful liar, the demoralized, and the delusional liar. Uh, so these are the four categories. Of course, they're alliterated. What does this all mean? Let me just take a moment and, and kind of uh, unpack this for you a little bit because I found it quite interesting and um, a bit telling. So these four types of lies. Um, he's put together a chart whereby you have deceitful and delusional on top, which means these are people who lie about facts. And then you have on the bottom the duplicious and the demoralized. These are people who lie about values. And this is important because this is where um, we're not just talking about words, but our lives. Because what we say we believe and then what we live out, those are values, right? What we say we value and then what we actually live out, that's where it can be seen as a lie if they're not lining up. And then you have the left-hand column and the right-hand column. So the deceitful and the duplicious are people who lie to others, and the delusional and the demoralized are people who lie to themselves. So let's take a look at this. The deceitful liar, the top left corner there, in, in my way of looking at it, I'm not sure if it's right or left, but the deceitful liar, okay, lies about facts to others. So they might say, I got a great deal on a t-shirt, it only cost me 20 bucks, when really it was $24.99, plus tax. The delusional liar is the person who lies about facts, but to themselves. I got a shirt for $20, <laughs> when it was $24.99, I'm a delusional liar. Uh, I didn't gain a single pound during the uh, lockdown of COVID. Yeah, maybe. Okay, so they lie about facts to themselves, or they lie about facts to others. Those are the first two, deceitful, delusional. Then you have the duplicious and the demoralized. The duplicious liar are those people who lie about their values to other people. I believe that exercise is super important. I do it regularly. When in reality, I don't. I might do it once a month. The demoralized liar are those people who lie about their values to themselves. Um, they might say th something like, my family means more to me than anything else in the whole wide world, but they consistently put their work at a family, and they're just not there. Now, I don't know how you um, relate to this little diagram, um, but I think that there's a lot of truth in here as to how we work and operate, and it's worth maybe digging a little bit deeper to see if I'm a deceitful person who's trying with facts to make myself look better or something like that or deceive someone else. Uh, that would be delusional if I'm actually believing facts that aren't true for myself, and that's maybe where a pathological liar comes in. Uh, duplicious is someone who's, you know, being two-faced towards someone else, but a demoralized person is someone whose values are inconsistent with what they say they believe, and that's what integrity is all about. Um, integrity is what you Say you believe and your actions coming together to be a whole, to be integral, right? That's what integrity is. And so that's why it becomes demoralizing because if a person is saying they believe something and truly desiring to value this, but they're living completely opposite from it, they themselves will become demoralized by that. Now here's an example that I want to give where I would say that I value my word because my word reflects my character. Therefore, if I say I'm going to be there or do something, I follow through. Unless, of course, 
One year when I was at Briarcrest College, I had said yes to being a parking attendant for a community event so that the community was coming out to our college campus and I'd said I would be out there flagging cars to park. Middle of winter, you know, cold, snowy conditions, sure, I'll go outside and do that. But on the night of the event, just beforehand, a group of my friends were going off to Moose Jaw for pizza, to Gino's, and they invited me. And I was just like, man, I would really love to be going to uh, Gino's for pizza, a warm environment on a cold night. But I'd said yes to going and parking these cars. My inner conversation went something like this. First of all, I thought to myself, will anyone even know if I'm not there? <laughs> and then I thought to myself, do we really even need parking attendants for this event? Like, quite honestly, people will know how to park their cars. I don't have to be there. But then there was a secondary conversation, you know, going on at the same time. Um, when I did the who will even notice if I was there, I thought, well, someone will, because I signed my name on a form and someone's in charge of that form, they will know whether or not Rod Heppel showed up to that or not. And so I was being a little bit conscientious about what someone else might think of my character if I didn't show up. But then the loudest voice of all was God's, right? And God was like, man, Rod, you said you would do it. That's your character. Follow through. And so I did. I went. And you know what? It was actually a lot of fun. I didn't realize how much power a person holding a flashlight and a high-vis vest has, right? You, over there. Kind of felt like the BC Ferries guys when they're like, stop, you know, a little bit further, a couple more inches, like that. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. Now, the Bible is filled with all sorts of examples of people who lied in everyday kind of situations. I'm going to give uh, quickly a few of these samples because I think that if we can understand that these people struggled with those kinds of circumstances, we can just translate it to our own circumstances and see a parallel to the challenge as to why they were being sneaky or trying to do what they were doing, right? So Adam... Uh, when God comes to Adam after he's eaten from the fruit of the tree that he's told him not to eat from, and he's trying to call Adam to account, what is his response? He blames his wife, Eve. He actually goes on to say, the woman that you had given to me. <laughs> really? So now you're blaming God. That's a brilliant strategy. Well, how is this lying? Well, it's kind of like deception, right? It's like deflecting, right? This is the lie of deflection. You're, you're buffering yourself from a direct hit to try to kind of go, well, she did it first. It's a lie. Abraham. Ooh. He had some real issues here. He did it twice. The same thing. Uh, him and his wife, Sarah, they would go and live amongst a couple different people groups. And each time, he was a little hesitant if these people group would be nice to him or not. And so to protect himself, he said, hey, when we get there, just say you're my sister. Uh, as if somehow they weren't going to kill him. Uh, if he was a husband, they'd kill him and take his wife. I guess that's the line of thought there. And so anyways, he tells his wife to lie. They do it twice. Both times it goes wrong. On the second time when he gets caught and he's being called out for it, he says, hey, she is my sister. She's my half-sister. And it's like, yeah, but Abraham, you're just trying to deceive, right? So it's a white lie. It's a half-truth. It's deception. And then we have Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Isaac's son, Jacob, right? At his mother, Rebecca's directives, he goes in before his aging father Isaac who's basically blind and he poses as his brother Esau, his older brother, because he wants to get his blessing. He wants to take his uh, inheritance. And so he, he comes before his father and he's got this deceptive little scheme and the father even asks him, he says, are you truly my firstborn son Esau? To which Jacob with a bold face lies says, I am. So we call this one liar, liar, pants on fire. He's just a full-on liar. In fact, Jacob was going to struggle a lot with this his whole life. And maybe there's something in here by a warning to us as parents that our kids catch how we lie 
and they begin to know what we think is right or wrong in how we should or could lie, and then they pick that up as well. Um, then there's Jacob's wife, Rachel. In this situation, Rachel's going to deceive her father. So she's stolen her father's household idols, and Jacob and Rachel and the whole clan are moving away, and they have their tent set up, and she's taking these idols, taking the idols, and she's hidden them under her uh, saddle that goes on her camel, and she's leaning up a, on top of the saddle or sitting on it, and uh, Laban is caught up to, to Jacob and them, and, and he's mad. He's mad because they've left without saying goodbye. He's mad because they've stolen his idols, and he's accused them of it, and he's going through Jacob's tent and Leah's tent, and then he comes to Rachel's tent, and Rachel says, I'm sorry, my Lord, forgive me. You know, I, I'm having my period. I can't get up, so forgive me that I can't stand in front of you, this kind of a thing, and so she deceives her father. Now, whether that part was true or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that she purposely did that so that her father wouldn't look and find his idols. So I call this one Jacob 2.0 because they're married. So I think Rachel and Jacob kind of learn from one another here. Then there's Gehazi. I shared this one a couple weeks ago. He was the servant of Elisha who went after Nahum, who was the army commander of the Syrian army, and Elisha, by the word of God, had healed this man when he dipped himself seven times in the water, you know, in the Jordan River. And then Gehazi goes after him and says, oh, my master wants some, uh, a gift in the end, you know, because uh, Elisha had re refused to take the gift. So he takes the gift and he hides the gift and then he comes back and he stands before his master, Elisha, and Elisha says, where were you? Where have you been? And he says, oh, your servant has not gone anywhere. <laughs> and Elijah's like, man, did I not see the commander of that army stepping down out of his chariot. And so he calls Gehazi to account. Um, this one is the lie of Humi. <laughs> and with kids, they get really good at that one. There's two more examples, and they only get harder. There's the example of Peter. We know this one so well. Poor Peter, right? Like, um, what an incredibly difficult situation. He's watching Jesus on court. He's already said that he would stand with Jesus till his very death. But when it got tested, when three different times in that courtyard, he was accused of being a friend of or a follower of Jesus three times, he absolutely denies knowing the man. So much so that it says that he even calls down curses on himself. Maybe he said something like this, may God strike me dead if I have ever known the man. Right? Something like that. This is the lie of deep regret. And finally... In the book of Acts, we see a story about two people, a husband and wife, both who, um, you know, conferred together on a lie. And they had sold a portion of land and they'd given the money to the church, which would have been fine, except they withheld a portion for themselves, making it look like the portion they gave to the church was the total amount. Peter said to them, you could have done what you wanted with your portion. You could have kept the 90 and given the 10, but whatever the breakdown was, they just tried to deceive. Well, who were they trying to deceive? People or God? Well, both. They were lying to God. And this is the lie of ultimate consequence. It cost them their lives. So if you look at these situations, you realize the human heart really hasn't changed and that we still struggle with the same kinds of scenarios. And I ask ourselves again the question, in all of life's circumstances, what are we aiming at? Are we aiming at a technicality that lets us off of something? Or are we aiming at developing character? that reflects the character of God, that we might be truth-tellers, that we might be honest people. That's the intent of the Ninth Commandment. It's not only to prevent us from lying and bringing harm to someone else, it's to inspire us and encourage us to become people who are honest. So let me ask you a question. Are you an honest person? 
Anne and I were listening to a podcast that she found called Family 360. They deal with all sorts of different topics relating to parenting and family. It's not a Christian podcast per se, but it is uh, really sound and good advice and lots of good thinking there. They shared one story about a family who decided to choose a virtue to kind of be their main virtue that they were going to focus on and challenge themselves with. And so they went to a little family conference time and they chose the virtue of honesty. Their family, whatever their name was, we will be the honest family. And what they did was in a given situation, they would ask themselves, is that honest? Because we are an honest family. And so they found this little principle of choosing honesty to be something that shaped uh, who they became. Not only as a family, but as individuals. It carried and spilled over into other areas of life because they would ask themselves, is that honest? I thought that was great. God wants us to be honest. He wants us to be honest all the time, not just in court but in everyday life. Not just with our words, but with our actions. Jesus actually linked our words and actions together in Matthew 5.37. When he says this, it was in the context of giving an oath. And he said, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've probably heard this before, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, don't try to use, I don't know, some kind of big speech or, uh, you know, uh, I swear on my father's grave to try to give credibility to your word. Let your actions and the consistency of you living out your actions be the credibility for your word. Because if you're consistently living out what you say, then people will know that when you say yes and when you say no, you mean it. It's the truth. They don't, you don't need to go and call upon some other greater authority. Honesty is the best policy, as the saying goes, which is easier said than done. So I want to share two stories with you of my own in my own life, about kind of this, you know, the integration of what we say we value or believe and living it out. I'm not overly proud of these stories, but I'll share it anyways. Some of you just woke up and said, sure, Rod, I'd like to hear your life. Um, back in middle school, I played in the band. I played the trumpet. And uh, one day in band class, our teacher was going to give a test on our knowledge of music. And I will tell you that my knowledge of music was not sound. That was a pun. I intentionally gave that. After we had turned in our, our papers, our tests, uh, someone told the teacher that Maureen had cheated, to which Mr. Allison, our band teacher, looked right at her and asked, is it true? Did you cheat? Well, her face turned red and tears started to well up in the corners of her eyes, and uh, the answer was obvious. He went on to shame her pretty strongly in front of all of us, and then he turned to the rest of us and he said, did anyone else cheat? And he slowly looked around the room moving his hand, looking at each one of us as students. My heart was pounding. I had cheated. I mean, hey, I hadn't cheated on the whole test, you know, just saw a couple of Gord Tiffin backs answers there and applied it to my own paper. As Mr. Allison was slowly looking around the room, giving us opportunity to confess, I wanted to. But I was scared. I was ashamed. I knew it was wrong. I knew Maureen was not the only one in that room who had cheated. But I stayed frozen in my seat. The room was silent. The stare ended, the class bell rang, and we all left. And I felt so guilty. But I never confessed my cheating to Mr. Allison, nor to anyone else. I went away living with the knowledge that I had lied, and I had not admitted my guilt when I was given a very clear opportunity to do so. And I regret that moment in my life. The second story took place a couple of years ago. Uh, we were in Saskatchewan for Thanksgiving. We were visiting our son Ryan and his wife Mia. They lived just north of Saskatoon. Our other son, Brendan, was also in Saskatchewan at the time, but he was at Briarcrest College in Carimport, which is about a three-hour drive from Waltime, Saskatchewan, where our other son, Ryan, lives. 
So the next day was going to be our Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, we got news from Brendan that he was able to come, but it was already 6.30 p.m. on a Saturday night. And so I thought, well, if I hurry, I can boot down, get Brendan, bring him back. You know, it'll be late, but then the next day we can have Thanksgiving together. So you already know where this trip or where this is going if I have to boot down and be in a hurry to get him. After I picked up Brendan from Briarcrest, we turned around and we started to head back to uh, Saskatoon area. And I came to a T in the road on the outskirts of a small town called Chamberlain. And when you come to this little T in the road, I saw a semi-truck off on the right-hand side and it was slowing down as it was coming into town. And I thought to myself, I don't want to sit behind a semi-truck if I just kind of quickly scoot through the stop sign here. Um, I can beat the semi-truck. I mean, I looked both ways, no one coming, but I didn't stop. I just rolled through the stop sign, was ahead of the semi-truck. Don't worry, Kevin Fraser, I left lots of room for the semi-truck. I wasn't one of those people who pull in front of a semi-truck and slow down. Don't do that. Semi-truckers don't like it. Plus, you will lose. So I pulled in front of the semi-truck. As quickly as I turned onto that street, police lights came on. So I pulled over. The officer came to the window of our car. He looked inside the car and he asked me a series of questions. It went like this. He says, said, do you know why I'm pulling you over tonight? Yes, I do. Is it for running that stop sign back there? Yes, it is. Were you trying to beat that truck? Most definitely I was. Did you know that I would normally be in my office at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night, but this weekend is designated an alcohol counterattack weekend in all of Saskatchewan? <laughs> no, officer. That I did not know. Could I please see your driver's license? Yes. After a few minutes, he returned to my window and said, So, Rodney, you're 51 years old. Yes, I am. And at 51, I assume you know what to do when you come to a stop sign? Yes, I do. Well, I'm going to give you a warning tonight, Mr. Heppel. I appreciate your being honest with me. To which I replied, Well, how could I not have been honest with you? You were sitting right there. You saw the whole thing. To which he leaned on my window and said, you would be amazed at how many times a person has lied right to my face under the almost exact situation. He said, your honesty tonight actually went a long ways in me giving you a warning instead of a ticket. Thank you for being honest. And he went back to his car. Brendan looked at me. He said, wow, dad. He said, that really paid off to be honest. And then he said, so at 51, do you know? No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. That's a lie. That's a half-truth. It's a fib. It's exaggeration. Brendan didn't say that. Uh, but to be honest, he probably thought it. Honesty. Are we honest people? Our words and our actions, do they match? Are we truth-tellers? Are we people who want to be consistent in the way in which we live out our lives? Am I living a lie? That might be a good evaluation question. I was reading through Isaiah this week, and I was in chapter 29, verse 15, and it says this. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? Who will know? Well, God will know. God knows, and God cares. He wants us as people to be truth tellers, both in our words and our actions. He doesn't want us to live a lie. So in closing... What is it that God wants us to learn from talking about this commandment today? Well, he wants us to be honest people and to tell the truth. He wants us to consider our words, to be very careful how we speak. Often we speak too quickly. He wants us to ensure that we do not slander and bring harm against our neighbor, which often when we speak quickly, we don't have the facts right. We don't 
necessarily know exactly what happens. And maybe, unintentionally though, we actually malign a person's character or defame them and we hurt them. So we need to be careful with the words we speak. Thirdly, we need to make sure that we're living consistently with what we say we believe and our actions. That we don't want to be living a subtle lie, something where we say we believe something, but we know that our actions aren't actually the same. And so it's sneaky, it's deceptive. Maybe others don't know, but God does. And God doesn't want us to bear false witness, to give false witness in our lifestyle. So is there something that we need to make right? Is there something that we need to talk to God about and ask for repentance of? And if I've hurt someone through that, to ask them for forgiveness. I want to leave you with this one little thought at the bottom there where it says, what we cover, God will uncover, and what we uncover, God will cover. This is based on the understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And oh, thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you for Jesus because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sin. And so when God, by his spirit, brings to my attention something that's not right in my life, that is living a lie, and I bring it before him in an act of admittance and repentance, the blood of Jesus Christ covers that sin. But you know, if I have a hard heart, and if I just carry on in my way of life, living a duplicity, um, living a life that's a lie, and I don't bring it before God, I don't uncover it before God, God will uncover it. The more I keep it covered, eventually it will come to be known. So again, what we cover, God will uncover. What we uncover, God will cover. So let's be the people that uncover our sin before God and allow his blood to cover it through the grace of Jesus Christ. Lying, deceiving, half-truths, exaggerations, double standards, whether in court or in everyday life, are things that do not reflect the character of God honesty does. So let's be honest people. Let's be truth tellers. And I know that each and every one of us, I'm sure, want to do that. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. And so I'd like to lead us in prayer that he would empower us to do that. Let's pray. Father, today as we stand in your presence or sit in your presence in our living room or wherever we're watching this, we think about the fact that you are a God who is a just God. And you are a God who wants us to be truth tellers and honest people. Help us to do so. Always, of course, in court, but always, of course, in everyday life. These are challenging things to live out. And so we recognize the fact that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to, first of all, maybe bring to light something that might not be right in our own hearts that's allowing us to make excuses or to lie to someone. But Lord, also, that you might be the one to empower us to make it right, to have the courage when we've got it wrong, to ask for forgiveness and to seek you and allow the blood of Christ to be applied to our lives and to forgive us our sins. So Father, help us to carry out this commandment through the spirit of grace and love with a heart that wants to follow you fully. Empower us by your spirit to do so, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us. We pray God's blessing on you and your week. Enjoy the summer months and the summer sunshine that we got this next week. And we'll see you right here next Sunday. God bless. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.